Morning Glory America from the West Coast ReliefFactor.com studio. I am Hugh Hewitt. It is the last radio hour of the week on Friday. It's getaway day, but we always get you off to the weekend by going up to 30,000 feet with the Hillsdale Dialogue. We've been doing it since 2013. An hour devoted to big pictures, big issues, sometimes current events, but mostly they've got to be important and huge issues for us to deal with them. My guest this week is he is most week, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale, collected at hillsdale.edu. That's where you go, by the way, to sign up for the absolutely free Imprimus Speech Digest, which will be delivered in the mail, the old-fashioned way, for you to read the old-fashioned way, in paper and print, although you can get it online as well, and you can get online all of the wonderful courses that Hillsdale uses to enrich your life at home via the web, including Dr. Arn's course on Churchill, which I'm going to be referring to today, including many other wonderful pieces there, all of the dialogues collected at Hugh4Hillsdale.com. Good morning, Dr. Arn. How are you? Good morning, Hugh. How are you? I am terrific. I have a big issue for which I completely left you unprepared. Okay. That, that's why, why change now, right? Yeah, that's it. All yeah. right. Um, I want to go Churchill on you because we have the president in a fight with a former head of the intelligence community, John Brennan, into which a dozen former heads of the intelligence community have waded, and the very estimable former admiral of the military, McRaven. First of all, about former military members, uh, Corey Shockey, a, a friend of the show, head of the London Institute for Strategic Studies, implored me and everyone to always refer to them as former admirals and former generals because of the necessity of maintaining the apolitical nature of the military, which I believe was begun by Washington. Am I right about that? Yeah. He, yeah, so step one, so there's, there's our baseline. Uh, George Washington did very great service for his country, uh, including in war. And then when the war was over and he won, he would resign and go home. Did the same thing about the presidency. And, and there is this story, and it's likely true, but it can't be proved, but it's uh, accepted, let's say, by, because it's so perfect. Uh, the King of England is supposed to be talking to the Prime Minister, and you know it took forever after after Cornwallis uh, surrendered in Yorktown to get a peace conference together. And the Prime Minister reminded the King that they needed to do that. And the King looked up and said, "George Washington will not know how to be a king, and they will want me back." And the Prime Minister replied, "I understand he has resigned his commission and gone home." And the, and the king, you see the assumption of the king, right? If you conquer, then you rule. Right? The king stirred himself and said, if he did that, he's the greatest man alive. And that resonates with us. Why? Because government is supposed to come in our way of understanding, in the classic way, too, but our way is especially sharp and clear. No human being, that kind of thing, may rightly be governed except with his consent. Of course, horses and dogs can be governed without their consent. They're not capable of giving their consent. And so, so that means then that all of, the, all of the powers of the government, and government has a monopoly on force, see? And it, it has to have, or else you'll have chaos. And the strongest element of force that it has is organized into a force, the military. And so, above all, you should have the culture that people who serve in the military, but by extension also the cops and the FBI and the CIA, 
must be especially dutiful about staying out of politics. And indeed, we have a long history of that being the case, and we know the exceptions, one of them being George McClellan, about whom I've been reading, unfortunately, he is from Ohio. I've been reading about him recently in his early engagements in the Civil War, establishing the brand for which he would become famous, and then entering into politics because he clashed with Lincoln. He's one of the exceptions where generals became high-profile political actors, and it didn't work out well. That's right. And uh, I've just read a good, very good biography of Grant, and Ulysses Grant, who succeeded, you know, three times removed McClellan. And if you read, if you study Grant and McClellan, you'll see the generals have to be politically astute, because Churchill writes at the summit, "True politics and strategy are one." And so, in what way do they use rightly their astuteness? You know, of course, George Washington was a very politically astute man. Um, they're just wonderful stories about how good he was at getting power without saying anything. And, uh, you know, like he, uh, the day they were going to pick a commander, George Washington, who was a very tall and a very handsome man and looked really great in a uniform, showed up at the Continental Congress wearing his uniform. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't normally do that. You know, everybody went, oh, yeah, that guy's a soldier. And they, uh, and, you know, he, so, so McClellan, he, he was really good with the troops. He was very organized. He took care of them. They had enough to eat. Um, and he was careful with them in the battle, in battles, to the place where, although he was a very skilled maneuverer, he would have, you know, down in Yorktown, the same place where the war ended, he would have five or six days maneuvering against Lee and never get anything done. And, and Lee didn't destroy his army. But he didn't really take on Lee very hard. And, of course, by the <laughs> views of the Union, the Southerners have taken a bunch of our land out of our Union, and we got to get it back. So McClellan was popular. And then he – and then, you know, the guys who followed him were, you know, mostly useless because there's nothing so bad for an army than to go into a battle and lose it with the feeling it was because they were badly led. Right. And, and the guy who was perhaps the worst was Hooker. And that was because the, on the one occasion when he chose not to be drunk might have been the occasion when he would have won had he been drunk and, yeah, and acted yeah. with reckless abandon in the prosecution of the offensive. But let me go back to Washington for a second. I'm on Meet the Press this weekend, and if I am successful, I will be able to mention that George Washington did not want to attend the Constitutional Convention originally because the Society of Cincinnatus was meeting there, and that when he finally did attend, he said nothing. And these are both important to his greatness. Yeah, and that's right. There are details there. So the, the Society of Cincinnatus, which Washington loved, and it was named after the Roman statesman who was a great general and then retired and went home and, and bowed to the Republic, you know, the, the officers of the of the American army, Washington's army, formed this society to keep their relations alive under the title of a man who had, you know, bowed military power to the republic. And then it was uh, attacked in the press as a aristocratic society. And Washington was embarrassed by that. He didn't like that. He didn't like to be that to be said. And so he told them he, he wouldn't attend their meeting. And, of course, that was a crushing blow to them. And then he was afraid that if he then went to the Continental Convention, they would be further offended. 
the society of Cincinnatus would be further right. offended. And so George, uh, sorry, James Madison got on his horse and rode to Mount Vernon and talked him into coming because Madison and Hamilton had written to each other that they didn't know if they could actually get the convention together without him. Then he was appointed chair of the convention by acclamation, and then he sat there through the whole thing and said nothing until toward the end, and I can't remember what he said, but what he said was he, he would, for his own part, adjust one point, and then he named some point, and then he said, but overall, it is an excellent document. And there is so much in that example. He also upbraided them once about secrecy, but I don't believe that was in his position as chair of the convention. I believe he did that outside of the convention. But there is so much in that example of not speaking, Dr. Arne, that a lot of people who have been in the government previously could learn from. That's right. And, and uh, you know, if, if uh, you know, the these guys, you know, who are making money and having a career on CNN now, having been connected to the military, the intelligence service. That's not the standard, right? And uh, you, you, you should do that in a, if you're going to do it. You know, there's, you know, there have been several generals elected president of the United States. You can go into politics, but uh, uh, you're supposed to do it in a certain way. Right. And, and <laughs> that way. And so, you know, uh, Ike... It was unclear which party Dwight Eisenhower would run for when he, when he was deliberating about running, and they both recruited him hard. And then when he ran, you know, his famous statements, if you think what they are, they're all kind of above politics. He didn't run as a partisan, and, uh, and, that, and, and he had a kind of stature because of his military service to do that, because that's for all of us. And that is, by the way, George Marshall as well, uh, the same sort of standard, the same sort of respect. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what has happened in the collision between former senior members of the apparatus of state security, the CIA and justice, and Donald Trump when we return. Don't go anywhere. 22 minutes after the hour, America, from the relieffactor.com West Coast studio. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn here on the Hugh Hewitt Show, playing Aretha Franklin in honor of the uh, First Lady of Seoul who passed away yesterday, and a Michigander herself. And so, Dr. Arn, we uh, tip our hat to Aretha Franklin in passing. I am, I'm constructing today's dialogue very carefully. We began with the history of how the military and the intelligence and the agencies of force in the United States act vis-a-vis the politics. Then we turn to the current... Con- I'm going to get to Brennan in the next segment. But first, Kimberly Strassel has written today uh, in the Wall Street Journal about a former uh, senior member of the Department of Justice under President Obama, under Loretta Lynch and Eric Holder. He's still at the DOJ. His name is Bruce Orr. But he is no longer an associate deputy attorney general. And she is raising questions about his role in the Christopher Steele dossier, questions which are uncomfortable because they suggest... Uh, They do more than suggest. They actually prove up a good prima facie case that DOJ and the FBI were involved in politicking in 2016. Yeah, um, it uh, I thought, you know, when I uh, James Comey was amazing to me when he appeared as a national figure, uh, in part because he would dance around the question of the independence of the FBI and. 
the Federal Bureau of Investigation is empowered to use lethal force. And so, independent, and uh, I talked to one man in the FBI of some significance, and, and uh, I said, independent of what? And, you know, that he's... He, he said to me, nobody ever asked me that question before. <laughs> I said, wow. Uh, but, you know, the, the powers of the government flow from the people to elected officials who serve uh, at their pleasure. And everybody in the federal government, every FBI agent, every soldier, everybody takes an oath to the Constitution of the United States. The Politically, the uh, appointed, the elected people have a larger authority because they have a direct contact with the sovereign, which is the constitutional majority, and because their terms are limited. They can, they're out of gas. They have to go back before the people soon. And so if you don't have that relationship right, then you have consent of the governed breaking down. And the Justice Department itself is uh, under the management of the President of the United States, or else it's not under management. And those powers are uh, checked and balanced of the President, are checked and balanced in a wonderful way with the powers of the Congress, and so are the powers of Congress as against the President and the courts. So that system of accountability is everything in the American government. And if you have people... In, you know, and now we're talking about civil servants in the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which has very great powers. You know, they can do a lot to people, including shoot them. If, if they're unclear about that, then that's a problem. And, it, you know, the FBI used some documents from a partisan source uh, from Fusion GPS, a British firm, hired by first some Republicans and then the Democratic Party. It's, it's an American firm hiring Brits, to be specific. It's an American firm. It yeah. It's but, an American firm. Okay. But it hired Christopher Steele, who's a Brit. Yeah. He's a Brit, uh, former MI5 guy. Yep. MI6, yep. MI6, see. I got everything wrong. With <laughs> see, if you would warn me, I would know. That. Uh, then uh, he, but this, the provenance of this portfolio about Trump's doings and purported doings in Russia is political opposition, campaign research. Yes. And then that's given to the FBI. Uh, the FBI has hired this guy, Steele, to work for them. Yes. And, uh, and so they used information he gave them before the FISA court, before the secret surveillance court, uh, invented in the Patriot Act, I think. Yes. And uh, It goes uh, back to 78, but it was reinvented in the Patriot Act. Yeah. Mm. There you go. And, uh, and so they, they use that information to get warrants to surveil people in the Trump administration, starting with Carter Page. And they don't disclose to the court the provenance of the information, ever. And when we come back from break, we're going to talk about how even after he was fired, as Kim Strassel points out today, they found a cutout in the Department of Justice to continue to funnel this political opposition research, as Dr. Arndt calls it, to the court. Stay tuned. 33 minutes after the hour, America, it is the Hillsdale Dialogue. We normally play classical music, but we're honoring Aretha Franklin today. Passed away yesterday at the age of 76. Dr. Larry Arndt is my guest, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. And even though we're in the relieffactor.com studio on the West Coast, I'm headed back to the East Coast tonight. I hope Dr. Arn is headed back to 
Michigan for the start of school soon. Uh, we are talking about John Brennan losing his security clearance and the reaction of the intelligence community to that. But we're doing so, it's so unusual for context to actually be provided to this story by talking first about Washington, then McClellan, then setting up the fact that in 2016, the FBI and the DOJ ran an intelligence operation against Donald Trump's campaign. Whether or not it was justified will remain to be seen. But that when the FBI cut off Mr. Steele because he broke the terms of the agreement, Mr. Steele continued to provide information to the FBI through a man named Bruce Orr, who is the subject of the Kimberly Strassel column today in the Wall Street Journal, and will be in front of Congress within two weeks, all of which suggests, Dr. Arn, does it not, a politicization of the intelligence community and law enforcement that is, if it has precedent in the United States, it's got very few precedents. Yeah, well, it, you know, government's always messy, and there have been precedents of things like this. But it's, you know, it you should you you should when you get close to a presidential campaign, and you know they apparently were eager to get close to a presidential campaign, then you should be walking on eggshells. And if you find something wrong, then the Constitution says what to do about a president who misbehaves in office, other politicians formed now into a judicial process, the two houses of Congress, are the ones empowered to do something about that. And so one thing they should do is they should tell the Congress, you know, they should get to a politician soon, right, because they're not qualified to make judgments affecting powerfully elections. And especially leaking is so common now that uh, Kimberly Strassel in her article has an instance in a text from Peter Strzok, now fired for partisanship in the FBI, where he said another uh, leak to his friend Lisa Page. He, he, he says another leak from B.O. in the New York Times today, exclamation mark. And B.O. is apparently this Bruce Orr, who was associate deputy head of the FBI, right? Yes. And, uh, and uh, so, so they're playing politics. And uh, and you know, I thought, you know, I thought James Clapper and James Comey, both while they were still in office, said things about Donald Trump and about the presidential campaign that were improper for people in their positions to say. And and you know, if you find out that somebody's an agent of an evil force running for president of the United States, you, you, you do have to disclose that. But you should disclose it as quickly as you can to some people who are elected to political office. And in fact, uh, Elise Stefanik asked Mr. Comey, uh, unprepared though he was, he, she asked him, why did you not brief the intelligence committees? And he blah, 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 and basically admitted that he didn't want to do it, and he didn't do it in a timely fashion. They did the exact opposite of the constitutional process, which brings us to Mr. Brennan, who, upon leaving the CIA, has begun and has continued an almost uninterrupted fusillade against the president, as is his right. But the president, as is his right, has revoked his intelligence uh, uh, clearances. And today we get this letter, which I want to read in full for the benefit of the audience, statement from former senior intelligence officials. As former senior intelligence officials, we feel compelled to respond in the wake of the ill-considered and unprecedented remarks and actions by the White House regarding the removal of John Brennan's security clearances. 
We know John to be an enormously talented, capable, and patriotic individual who had devoted his adult life to the service of this nation. Insinuations and allegations of wrongdoing on the part of Brennan while in office are baseless. Since leaving government service, John has chosen to speak out sharply regarding what he sees as threats to our national security. Some of the undersigned have done so as well. Others among us have elected to take a different course and be more circumspect in our public pronouncements. Regardless, we all agree that the president's action regarding John Brennan and the threats of similar action against other former officials have nothing to do with who should and should not hold security clearances and everything to do with attempts to stifle free speech. You don't have to agree with John Brennan says, and again, not all of us do, to agree with his right to say it, subject to his obligations to protect classified information. We have never before seen the approval or removal of security clearances used as a political tool, as was done in this case. Beyond that, this action is quite clearly a signal to other former and current officials. As individuals who have cherished and helped preserve the right of Americans to free speech, even when that right has been used to criticize us, that signal is inappropriate and deeply regrettable. Decisions on security clearances should be based on national security concerns and not political views. And it's signed by William Webster, Robert Gates, George Tennant, Porter Goss, General Hayden, Leon Panetta, General Petraeus, James Clapper, John McLaughlin, Steve Capps, Capus, Mike Morrell, uh, Avril Haines, and David Cohen. Uh, I have a reaction to this, but I'll let you go first. Yeah, well, um, first of all, those are some, you know, some of those people are good people. Very, very, very yeah, good and, people. Uh, and uh, there's one thing I don't like in it. Um, when they say that claims of wrongdoing by uh, Brennan when he was in office are baseless, they're actually setting out to prove something that would be extremely difficult to prove, right? Number I mean, one, they have no way of, I have no proof that he did anything that was wrong, but they have no way to make that allegation they can point to th- they can prove positives that he did many good things but they can't prove negatives that's, that's not logic. logically possible yeah so there's a little bit too sweeping there gentlemen and uh they and so they're you know setting out to make a point and the point about free speech is everybody has a right to say what they want to say within the limits of libel and slander and such as that but everybody doesn't have a right to a security clearance. And That's this is point number two. I teach constitutional law. There is no First Amendment issue here. None. Zero. Yeah. No one's speech is being suppressed because no one has a right to a security clearance. Years ago, uh, a bunch of students at the college got into a dispute between some libertarians and some others about the first Iraq war. Some of them liked it and some of them didn't. And they were putting posters up around the campus, and then they started tearing each other's posters down, and it was a big brouhaha. And, uh, and so I made them take all the posters down and said, forget about this. You guys got work to do. And uh, who cares what you think about the Iraq? <laughs> and, uh, you know, for that matter, who cares what I think about the Iraq war, right? Yeah. And one young man, friend of mine today, really great, getting his Ph.D. in economics, he said, you're interfering with my freedom of speech. I said, no. no Here are you in my office talking on. And he said, but you took down my poster. I said, you put your poster on my wall. On my wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is, there is this fundamental confusion about what 
the free speech, the government may not interfere with you and me saying what you and I want to say right now. We can call Donald Trump the worst president in the history of American politics, and they may not interfere with that. We can call him the best president we've ever seen, and they may not interfere with that. But there is no government action involved in the withdrawal of the security clearance, whether or not it was because he didn't like John Brennan's tie. It doesn't matter. That's right. And, uh, and you know, Brennan, if, if he did anything about, you know, one, one of the things, under the scholarship, for example, of Cass Sunstein, University of Chicago law professor, we, we think freedom of speech has to do with how many people hear you, and we can qualify your speech if too many are. And, and the point is, by that standard, to which I do not adhere, John Brennan's freedom of speech has been increased by this thing. Cause well, that is actually what Eli Lake has argued, I think, quite perceptively. Uh, is that the president is seeking not to stifle Brennan, but to elevate him. He wants to make John Brennan the face of his opposition because John Brennan comes out of the intelligence community whose conduct is compromised by virtue of the stroke steal with which there is no yet obvious connection to Brennan. We don't know that the CIA had anything to do with this yet, but he's trying to elevate Brennan to that in a political move. So if you're going to play politics... Don't expect not to get tackled. You know, the great, we, we honor people in the CIA, many of whom have given their lives for their country. And one of the things we honor about them is their silence. They do heroic deeds and nobody ever knows. And, and they compromise, they change things about their lives to preserve anonymity. And so this is kind of the opposite impulse, isn't it, of, you know, and Brennan has a political career, right? Brennan was an appointee in the Obama administration, and Brennan has, uh, you know, he was a political appointee, the head of the CIA. He was also a political appointee of George W. Bush. He's a career guy. I mean, he's a career intelligence official. And that, and and so he, you know, he's picked a side here, and that's his right to do so. But even then, in my opinion... Think back to the example of George Washington, which is, by the way, so high an example that it's hard to deploy because it's almost beyond. But even so, wouldn't you be demanded by your former office to comport yourself in a certain way? And, and you know, uh, there's a retired general, I won't say his name, but he was a three-star general. And he had a lot to do with intelligence, and he had kids at Hillsdale College, and he's a friend of mine. He's retired now. Before he was retired, and you know, he and I agree about things in general. Before he was retired, I'd say, how's it going? And he'd never say anything except, it's a target-rich environment. <laughs> you know, I, I, what, what I, my larger point, and I hope I get to make this point, is that what Mr. Brennan and Mr. Clapper are doing is without precedent. They are politicizing position of former director of CIA and former director of NI. And that has not happened before. There have been a lot. George H.W. Bush ran for president, but he did not use his position as director of the CIA to criticize George, uh, Jimmy Carter after he left that job when Jimmy Carter was obviously in the process of creating the most malignant state in the on the globe today, the Islamic Republic of Iran, by doing nothing. And, and yet George H.W. Bush said nothing. Yeah. And that, that's better, right? In other words, you, when you get to know the secrets of the nation, you have to accept a discipline. 
um, you know, the, 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 the Congress has, so I was led to, to an, answer a hypothetical from somebody in authority one time. What if I gave information to the Congress and I knew that they would abuse it and, the, uh, and my agents would be compromised and they would be killed? Do I have to give it? And I said, yes, you do. And he said, wow. And I said, but think, you know, the Constitution protects you, too. If they demand something like that, then you can resign and make a stink about that point. You bet. And the Intelligence Service uh, Committee is contrived so that members of the Congress can get secret information, and they, they they, they may not disclose it. Right, and there's leaks from the Intelligence Committee, and Congress should do something about that, because that too you accept a sort of code. You're representing yep. the rest of the Congress, knowing things that must not be generally known. Well, so put, they're carrying uh, an obligation ha- to the rest of the Congress. Hang on to that. I'll be right back, Doctor Larry. Arn, the Hillsdale dialogue continues. We're we're doing this methodically, and we will conclude it methodically. So welcome back, America. 51 minutes after the hour from the ReliefFactor.com West Coast studio. I'm concluding this week's Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry R. Not surprisingly, once again, taking the position in the conversation that is at odds with the dominant media elite. But I remind people that I had on earlier today, Attorney General Patrick Morrissey of West Virginia, where the president's approval rating is 65 percent. 65 percent of West Virginians approve of the president. And so there is a vast number in the millions of Americans who wonder, why is it on every media outlet I turn on, everyone agrees John Brennan has been done wrong when I don't feel that way? And, Doctor, and that's what I wanted to conclude with. We now have a, a, a unanimity of opinion in the major networks of America, which is very dangerous to the very First Amendment values we were talking about, which is... You don't hear a contrary opinion. Yeah. Well, Hugh, I'm going to take your testimony as, as, as your word for that because I don't watch that. But uh, I read the press, and uh, a different. they just ring the changes on this day after day in the written press, and, uh, you know, except Kimberly Strassel or people like that, right? And, you know, the facts are here that there's a process for assigning security clearances, and it's a privilege to get one. And Donald Trump certainly has the power to take Brennan's away. And Brennan is, uh, you know, a bitter enemy. And, and uh, so, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't, do I think he should have done that? I don't know. I bet he did it, as you say, to elevate Brennan. And uh, I think Trump understands, you know, he's acting like a man who understands he's in an argument. And it's a serious argument. They want to take him down. And so, he's you know, fighting. stop there. That is exactly what many people don't realize is that Donald Trump understands they want his scalp. Right. Yeah. They want yeah. to Nixon him. This isn't about beating him in 2020. This is about taking him out before then. That's right. And and, you know, if you could step back and look like, there's a lot of things to cover here. And, you know, it may be part of the artfulness of Donald Trump that he exacerbates all this stuff that's going on right now. Because, you know, from I, I, there's no evidence that, of which I know that Russia, that uh, Donald Trump colluded with Russia to win the election in 2016. Agreed. Know. As they of have, now, there is no public evidence I, of I that. Don't, I don't see any of that. And, uh, and, uh, 
you, you read Molly Hemingway, who's been writing about this a lot, and there's some even some admission in a filing from the special project from Mueller's office that they don't have any of that. Um, so if so, then what is this about? And and it is a fight unto the political death. Thank God we don't have the other kind in America. And and so he's fighting it like that. But also I wonder, you know, because they're doing a lot, you know. I mean, there's been the tax cuts and the famous big public things, but there are regulatory reforms underway in the government that have a sharper focus on what the law actually empowers the agencies to do. And also a recognition, at least among many officials, I, I don't know Donald Trump, but at least among many people who work for him, because some of them are students of mine, and I talk to them, uh, they understand that in the end, the legislative power is given to the Congress, which today makes about 10% of the laws in America. And they see that that should be curbed, that we should have accountability back to the lawmakers. And, uh, you know, because then we can get other ones. Maybe we're about to get other ones in the fall elections. And so uh, those are some fundamental things. And they're going on, you know, with, with the purpose across many agencies. And I haven't seen anything like that since the Reagan years. No, it is, it is tectonic. There are forces at work which are so much beyond the average commentator's grasp. And, and you do have to go back to the beginning of the Republic, and you do have to come forward through the conflict of the Civil War, and you have to get up to the World War II. And I didn't get to Churchill, so I wanted to close there. How did Churchill get along with his intelligence community, which was so effective, right? Give us yeah. a minute. Well, nobody knew who they were. C, a guy named Mingis, who, you know, Bletchley Park, little old village outside London, swelled up to 25,000 residents. And they were all working. Nobody in town knew what they were doing, but they were breaking code. That's where the Enigma code was broken and, and regularly then translated and revealed. Key phrase, nobody knew who they were. Nobody knew. And Churchill, uh, there were seven, uh, I might get this number wrong, there were a small number of people who had access to the information in its source, and Winston Churchill kept the key to the box that it came in on his person at all times. And so nobody knew, nobody knew there was such a thing. And, and the code name for the guy was C, and years after the war, there was no knowledge of who he was. Is it that? Um, see, that is the takeaway from the day. Sometimes, sometimes, even though I lack a producer, we elegantly produce a Hillsdale dialogue that makes the point in the last minute. <laughs> Larry Arn, always a pleasure, Dr. Arn. Hillsdale dialogues are all collected at you for Hillsdale.com and everything at Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. 